Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. This week, we have, after discussing the birth of capital on the Silk Road, merchant capital, value in motion going back and forth between those great ancient empires, now we have to discuss the age of European exploration. And that's a very interesting kind of dialectical development. Very briefly, what is happening is precisely the barbarians on the periphery of the Muslim world, who we saw a bit close up in Russia last time, we have people like that on the other side of the Muslim world in Spain who develop a very, very strong... Uh, they're actually fellow Abrahamists, right? Uh, Christians. A remnant of Christianity which otherwise has been reduced in the East where the Roman Empire moved, again, as quickly as it could in order to take advantage of trade opportunities. It's been reduced just to this city of Constantinople and that you have a movement among the... Christians who remain in the absolute backwaters of a place called Europe, which up until this point, recall, has not featured in our history of class society. And so there's a movement to go and save Constantinople and also to save Jerusalem, to save these very important cities that are lie dimly at the root uh, in, in the European imagination, lie at the root of this, some tradition that they belong to. That's going to lead to crusader states, crusader colonies. They actually found sort of colonies there. And that's when particular Italian cities like Venice and Genoa become very important and influential. They, merchants from there, sort of run those outposts and networks long after direct political control of Jerusalem has faded. Initially, they actually appoint a king of Jerusalem after they, for the first time that they conquer it. But very quickly, this becomes about trade. Very quickly and cynically, uh, many of the crusading leaders who had promised to deliver so many cities to the patriarchs of the Eastern churches immediately decide, oh, I'm just going to keep this city and... Uh, take all its trade revenue for myself. Various French kings do this, right? And it's by fighting in this way and seeing also what there is in, in the, the riches of the civilized world that Europeans begin to acquire a great consciousness of themselves as Christendom, right? We are Christendom. And they actually don't really recognize their fellow Abrahamists as co-religionists in any important way. They are infidels, and it's not only against Muslims, but also against Jews. The pogroms really begin in Europe precisely with the beginning of the Crusades. And at the same time, another sort of facet of crusading is so-called reconquest, right, of land that for... 800 years had been governed by Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula, what is today Portugal and Spain. And a lot of the same people go to fight there, right? And you get all kinds of uh, 
financial networks, this is well known, right? And apropos for us, right? Uh, things like credit and sort of traveler's checks, all kinds of technologies for uh, pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land from Europe are created by groups like the Knights Templar, the Knights of Malta. Relevant to our discussion today will be the Knights of Santiago, or St. James the, the Greater, who is a patron saint of Spain, and he's also known as the Moor Slayer. And the Knights of Santiago are a kind of paramilitary organization which is associated with taking that territory and holding it and ethnically cleansing the newly founded kingdom of Spain. There was a moment a couple years ago on the internet when everyone noticed that these white hoods that clergy and also like confraternities of lay brothers in Spain would wear at religious festivals in the Catholic Church, they look just like KKK hoods. And then a whole bunch of outlets like BuzzFeed or something all chimed in at once with articles saying, no, this actually has, it's from medieval Spain, it has nothing to do with the KKK. Oh, and, and immediately you might say, oh, okay, medieval Spain, yeah, no, that's totally unrelated. Well, except that settler colonialism was invented in Spain during the so-called Reconquista, and precisely the kind of paramilitary activity that the KKK does was carried out by these various lay confraternities and also chivalric orders like the Knights of Santiago. And this was a long, long process, right? The conquest of Spain by the Christians. And it had all kinds of fronts and elements, and it was slow and reversible. Uh, you can see one of the earliest epic poems in celebration of this is El Cantar del Mio Cid, or the Song of the Cid. And you can see in that world, actually, a much more blended uh, medieval Spain where you actually have uh, the hero has plenty of Muslim friends. They help him. His whole title, El Cid, comes from the Arabic title, Sayyid. Uh, he has some Jewish people that help him, although he doesn't treat them very well. And I think the poem sort of approves of that, unfortunately. But even there, you can see a very multicultural world and a multi-intra-Abrahamic relations are still relatively peaceful. And it's actually much later, after the Reconquista is done and the persecutions, the Spanish Inquisition starts up and the persecutions of the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, against the remaining so-called moriscos, right, uh, and the conversos, the, the Jews who have converted to Christianity in order to stay in Spain. This genocide of Ferdinand and Isabella gives birth to all kinds of Andalusian, Al-Andalus is the name, Arabic name for what we call Spain today, and Andalusian, there are Andalusian communities created in Italian kingdoms like Naples, of refugees who go there, and there are whole kind of picaresque novels. There's a really interesting picaresque novel um, called La Lozana Andaluza, which is about a conversa woman refugee who goes to Italy and has various adventures there. The picaresque genre 
is normally about a picaro, which is a young uh, a boy who is an orphan or something or is is homeless, of which there were many, as Spain's imperial expansion immediately led to inflation at home and just totally crashed the economy. You see imperialism kind of having a first run and starting up the engine of imperialism only to have it explode immediately the first few times, totally getting crashed. Uh, this is this impoverished Spanish countryside is most famously sent up in Don Quixote, right? And at the same time, you have the Spanish Inquisition, which is always looking into people's private religious life and asking them the question, are you authentic? Are you really a Christian? And so on. And so this creates a great preoccupation with interiority and subjectivity and authenticity. And so Don Quixote, right, is actually combining the picaresque together with the courtly romance of Knights in Shining Armor which is another important genre that I want to talk about. I want to give you a little picture of Spanish literature at this time because I think it gives you a great window into the birth of white supremacy and anti-blackness, which are key to early modern imperialism that gives birth in turn to industrial capitalism a bit later by the 19th century. So as... Old Carl says in Capital Volume 3, by the end of the age of merchant capital, the world economic system becomes centered on production of surplus, but not just surplus nutrition, like grain stored in granaries, as a, an ancient grain state would do, but actually the storing up of value itself. And then that surplus value itself uh, begins to circulate in these early modern empires from Portugal, Spain, England, the Dutch East India Company. After the union of the English and Scottish crowns, you have the Britain, the British Empire really comes out on top, as we know. But back in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, we want to get the birth of white supremacy and anti-blackness because it's these divisions that produce the unequal uh, differentials across which merchant capital begins to be able to uh, mutate, increase itself, and actually uh, become more and more of a driving force in history. And that white supremacy and anti-blackness is actually born from the intra-Abrahamic rivalry between Christendom and the Muslim world. And this is a very dialectical thing, as I said, because it's all about how the same sort of narrative, when it's on a different wavelength or when it's out of phase, you might say, on one side of the divide, people are perceiving the people on the other side in kind of a different way. And those differences in perception and self and self-other, all that stuff... On both sides, this creates this interesting kind of feedback loop that creates barriers across which capital can increase itself. And it, white supremacy, it comes from 
all of these laws from the Pope that were supporting the so-called Reconquista, right? You, laws of just war. You can, because we are fighting for the one true faith against infidels, and they really did think that Muslims were totally infidels, right? I mentioned that the Quran expresses, they say, Christians and Jews will have their reward from God. The idea is not that they are totally benighted and they're going to hell. Not at all. But from a Christian point of view, that's what they think about Muslims. They, in all kinds of this kind of lowbrow literature, you have a picture of Islam where they, they worship multiple gods. They're imagined as maybe being kind of like Greek and Roman antiquity. Although Greek and Roman antiquity themselves are, are not seen as being sort of demonic in the same way. You know, people might be scared of demonic possession from Mesopotamian wind gods or Olmec heads or something. But uh, if that's the case, you better watch out around Greco-Roman statuary too, because surely they're demonic as well, right? Uh, but of course, that's not usually the case in uh, white supremacist discourse as it grows, right? Um, the Lusiadas of Luis de Camoens, who himself was quite an adventurer, participated in the early drug trade. His first printed poem appears in the frontispiece to a catalog of drugs. And uh, Kamoensh, throughout his epic poem describing the discoveries of the Portuguese and adventures they have, uh, he has a very pagan kind of outlook, even though sort of on the surface he's all talking about how he's spreading Christendom and fighting the Islam and, and everything. Uh, but nevertheless, actually, what's usually happening is uh, sort of councils of gods, much like in Homer and Virgil, are happening. And uh, Venus takes the side of Portugal and the West, and it's Bacchus or uh, Dionysus, who is on the side of pagan uh, Indian evil or whatever. right? And here, the, the idea of the demonic comes out once again in the Alexandrian Hellenistic synthesis you get between the various, that's kind of what gives birth to the various Abrahamic religions is them sort of demonizing each other in turn. That over there is demonic. Even within the New Testament, sort of you get the Jewish leaders who are fighting against Jesus are in some sense demonic. They are supporting the evil sort of temporary ruler of this world right? That's that basic Abrahamic cosmic monarchy, and then maybe cosmic insurrection. And then it's, it's a real minority, but you, you actually get religions that stick with just that, where actually the insurrectionary figure, maybe just like the snake in the garden without being imbued with this idea that he's Satan in the cosmic evil way, uh, that would be various Gnostic groups. And they don't believe that like evil is the ultimate principle or something. They, they believe good is the ultimate principle, but there's an original good principle and the evil thing is what created this world and then the good that is insurrectionary against that evil uh, actually is that serpent for some of them, right? And then you have the Yazidis who also stick with just that insurrectionary thing where there's an evil cosmic tyrant and a good cosmic rebel is, uh, is actually good and is um, because he is an insurrectionary. He's a beautiful peacock who is 
uh, in insurrection against the cosmic evil principle, which is in control of this world or created it or whatever. I don't know a lot about the Yazidis, but um, they've been being massacred, right, by uh, Islamic State. And I think there's every suggestion that that's part of the result of looking at them from an Islamic point of view and saying, oh, you worship Satan, therefore you like evil, therefore it's totally justified to do all kinds of bad things to you, right? So, and this same principle is definitely at work on the Christian Muslim frontier. And then after the so-called Reconquista, you, within Spanish society, you have just constant vigilance against these foreign elements which may be lurking within the mind or heart of anyone who, according to the uh, customs of their ancestors, is still somehow practicing some demonic practices. And this is a built on a long-standing kind of suspicion among the Christian Europeans who had always been, right? I mean, this is a backwater. This is an unimportant part of the world up until this point. And Jews and Muslims would be the only people that would connect them to the more so-called civilized world. You know how sympathetic I am to so-called uncivilized places too, but they would have a kind of relationship looking up from below, an inferiority complex. And once they sort of come to be on top, well, then there's a lot of resentment and anger and, and hostility, whatever, that gets transmuted in this way as the power dynamics change into vindictiveness. And you get people accepting this demonic appellation, right? Uh, witches and uh, like the titular character of La Celestina, the first great work of Spanish literature, who is a kind of witch fortune teller uh, character. She uh, repairs virginity of lost virginity of maidens and also pimps uh, women to clergy and local aristocrats and anyone else. And she can do all kinds of sort of parapolitical favors on the side. And then a bit later in picaresque novels like Lazarillo de Tormes, for example, you meet his mother and she has, you know, bat wings and all kinds of drugs. And she, this is the birth of the apothecary, by the way, which at the same time that all of these new botanicals and animals are coming into Iberia, these fringe figures are becoming the first apothecaries. And this is the birth of the global drug trade. So you would mix the wood of a certain tree from Brazil with the liver of a mountain cat from Peru and distill that with uh, into a liqueur and that would cure your cramp, colic, spleen, the gout, syphilis, whatever ails you. So much more likely than these peripheral figures themselves, it would be men who pass as white Christian Spaniards who would, they take over not only the old Italian trading networks in the Middle East, but now they're plundering the Americas and they've enslaved all these Africans. And so they have all of this free labor and all of this free capital. 
and it's just flowing in so quickly that it crashes markets in India and China. And suddenly Europe is at the center of this great trading network centered on Iberia at first. But this is the birth of the sort of proto-bourgeoisie. And I think it's interesting from the point of view of spiritual history. I wonder if there is a kind of, if, if ruling classes in the, before then had not adopted the idea that we have a kind of different morality and we have a different religion. You know, we teach the peasants to be meek and mild and all that, but privately, esoterically, we celebrate and cultivate our role as conquerors, exploiters, and killers. Uh, that's always good to look at. You know, how, do, how does society look from the top down or from the bottom up? The same phenomenon might look good, it might look evil, looking from above or from below. Now, my position would be that a classless, therefore stateless, society is the most preferable and, in fact, is maybe kind of what we're going to have to have if society is going to continue at all. From a materialist, scientific point of view, uh, we still need to materially, scientifically understand all these different points of view in class society. We need to understand the enemy side, proletarian side. I would take the proletarian side, and I do think that the process of getting to that classless, stateless society is going to involve the lower side actually taking power in some way and thereby abolishing class distinctions eventually. My friend Vlad has a lot to say about that, state and revolution. But uh, we have some uh, kind of vampire hunter podcasters out there in the online left these days. Shout out to Subliminal Jihad. They would be centered on sort of the elite Satanism, right? This is uh, certainly is an observable reality in many cases. I'm convinced that this is at least a part of the culture of the bourgeoisie, the very upper crust of the bourgeoisie. And that can be traced back to various dialectical judo flips happening at the moment of the birth of Europe here. Because there's this intense demonization of Muslims and Jews. And at the exact same time, you have the proto-bourgeoisie getting into these Silk Road networks for the first time. And they may be embracing in some ways these like uh, a certain kind of satanic self-identification, which the people that they're taking over those networks from did not hold, right? Although there is something objectively or effectively magical about capital. Different things which are totally different things, right? And people and... Uh, are all commodified and given values on a market, and they can be exchanged. One thing can turn into another thing. That's magical right there. But then, for a great contrast, hey, let's look at the Quran. There is a whole chapter called the Byzantines, and it's about the defeat of the Byzantines by the Persians, 613-614 CE in Syria. Then it predicts the victory of the Byzantines in 624. And the Byzantines are on our side, the Abrahamic side, against the pagan Persians. They win, it's good, right? They lose, it's bad. 
we have then a, a statement of like there are different dispensations at different times and each people sort of gets their own messages from God and previous Abrahamic religions are not completely false. They're just watered down and corrupted over time. Judaism, Christianity has fallen away from the true message. Have they not traveled through the land and seen how their predecessors met their end? They were mightier than them. They cultivated the earth more and built more upon it. Their own messengers also came to them with clear signs. God did not wrong them. They wronged themselves. So previous Abrahamic religions have collapsed, or they might, and if they do, like the Byzantines, that's bad, but it's not God's fault. It's their fault for turning away from his message for them. But now we have our message, right? There's, a, there's definitely a kind of a, a hierarchy, but it's not like black and white. In fact, on the same page, diversity is a sign of divine providence by which you can know the goodness of God, the diversity of your languages and colors. We have many statements against sectarianism. Be mindful of him, keep up the prayer, do not join those who ascribe partners to God, those who divide their religion into sects, with each party rejoicing in their own. There's an emphasis on reason and enlightenment. This is not really found in Judaism, Christianity thus far. It's, it's much more uh, Muslim innovation. And it will later on, you know, of course, be taken up by the European Enlightenment, backed up, of course, by all, those, all that great budget, all that great uh, capital that is plundered from the Americas and Africa. But the Christian dispensation is worn out through their own fault, just as the Hebrew dispensation wore out before them. Actually, in that same chapter, we're talking about the different forces that God has ordained in the world. Uh, you know, you, this is a common Abrahamic thing of like, God makes the rainfall and so on. But then we, we get the wind here in the Quran. And the wind is something that is good because it can help you to do maritime trade. This here is another way in which the Quran is born on the Silk Road. It's born under merchant capital, and it actually has many safeguards against the most demonic elements of capital that it, it can take over. It can, human society can become oriented toward the accumulation of capital as an end in itself. It can actually become a ruler. It can, it's almost as if we are possessed by it. It's like an alien intelligence. There are many, many thinkers in many time periods who have compared capital to an alien intelligence that is taken over and is parasitic upon human society. And we get many sort of safeguards against this in Islam that we don't see in earlier Abrahamism. One of the pillars of Islam is giving charity. And that's not, it doesn't have that central status in the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, love one another, but it, he doesn't, you don't have to interpret that as in any kind of material way. And indeed, many, there are plenty of Christians who manage to do zero, less than zero material charity in their entire lives and consider themselves and are considered to be great Christians. So... This is a bit different. So, give their due to the near relative, the needy, and the wayfarer. That is best for those whose goal is God's approval. Those are the ones who will prosper. Whatever you lend out in usury, 
at interest, right? To gain value through other people's wealth will not increase in God's eyes. But whatever you give in charity, in your desire for God's approval, will earn multiple rewards. And there are many financial safeguards against sort of uh, capital in... Islam is the first Abrahamic religion that is really conscious of capital and really kind of deals with it, has safeguards to keep it within some kind of bounds. There's a sense that it can be a dangerous force. There's a picaresque novel called Guthman de Al-Farache, and a major plot point in there is the use of a financial instrument called a fakuj, something that Muslims normally use, which I think is sort of like short-selling stock. Uh, But this kind of financial technology is definitely seen as something akin to black magic. But capital itself can be put toward good ends. And I think there's a lot in Islam that is about ensuring that that happens. Another of his signs is that he sends out the winds bearing good news, giving you a taste of his grace, making the ships sail at his command, enabling you to journey in search of his bounty so that you may be grateful. So journeying in search of bounty, that's trade, maritime trade. And that same wind can also scorch your crops. That's a, something from our earlier, right, the grain state. Yeah, the, the disbelievers will continue in their disbelief, even if we, God, send a scorching wind and they see their crops turn yellow. So the wind is something that can turn your crops yellow, but it also is something that allows you to make journeys and do maritime trade. And feudal moralities around the world also have all kinds of safeguards on power relations. We would see in medieval Europe, there certainly is a strong sense, you know, Saint Louis, the saintly French king, is always depicted washing the feet of the poor. The solicitous king, the solicitous daimyo in Japan, we mentioned... Aizawa Seishisai, the last defender of the grain state there. In many ways, he is calling to his basic program is on one side. Samurai need to be nicer to the peasants. We need to, you know, with all our hearts, sort of think of the needs of the peasants. And this is the morality of the grain state. But in order to get capitalism started, you have to dispossess all the peasants you have to enclose the land. You have to kick all the peasants off the land, impoverish them, kill most of them. Then, then they end up in the great industrial cities and slums working as wage laborers because they have to sell their labor power to survive. And this requires a great kind of evil, a great kind of will to dominate others and to accumulate value for yourself, which... Uh, Yeah, there's something about that, the image of evil in the intra-Abrahamic hall of mirrors kind of looking back and forth across the Christian-Muslim divide and then the color line as it grows gradually. One end point of that you can see in Shakespeare's The Tempest, where you have a kind of savage figure who is uh, black and is the son of a witch and the devil. There we've gone beyond where it's just holy war against Islam and we can take 
land, we can kill people, obviously, and it's even better than killing them. We can take them as slaves. If you enslave them, maybe their eternal souls can be saved when they convert to Christianity. That's the initial rationale. But very quickly, we get the growth of the idea, not only is Islam totally demonic, you know, they worship many gods, maybe. Also, there are images of, in Mecca, they have a giant, in, you know, the Kaaba, in fact, is a, a cube, right? But in Iberian myth, the idea is that actually what they have there is a giant head of the prophet Muhammad, and they worship Muhammad, and they were, you know, it's just totally fantastical and idea. They're totally evil, totally demonic. And so I think that the proto-bourgeoisie going back and forth between these worlds, right? And the people who go back and forth between these worlds were many. There's a whole genre in Spanish literature as well called uh, captivity narratives, where people who have gone to the Muslim world and made it back are telling their stories. And again, there's a kind of interrogational quality to these. These people are, they have inside knowledge of this evil world where Christians are sometimes captured and they have to live as slaves. Uh, but at the same time, they're, sub, they're suspect because they have gotten used to it over there. Maybe they've br they're bringing back some kind of contagion from that demonic world over there. And also realities that they see over there may upset neat and clean ideas of Christendom because Byzantine or other like Ethiopian Christians maybe in one of them, I remember. Some very, you know, ancient Christian communities over in Eastern Africa or somewhere do not unconditionally help the Spanish Christians that they encounter against their Muslim captors. And so this idea of unconditional intra-Christian solidarity is very much troubled in that case. So there's this dialectic of self and other, master and slave, uh, good and evil, across all of these geopolitical boundaries. And they're all slightly out of phase with each other, but that coincides with the rediscovery from the Muslim world of a lot of antique texts, right? People know all about, people usually know about Greek science, Greek philosophy sort of coming back at this time, and that's definitely true. But you also get a lot of those other strands of the Hellenistic synthesis that gave birth to Christianity in the first place, Platonism, Hermeticism, which is a strain of Egyptian religious thought, right, that makes it into Greek translation and is a crucial ingredient in the formation of the Abrahamic religions in the Hellenistic period. This is right around the lifetime of Jesus. And some of the Egyptian ingredients that go into Christianity, at least, uh, would be the idea of the Trinity the father begetting the son in sort of some sort of eternal or maybe cyclical way through a female figure. So this is Osiris, Horus, and Isis. And you get the recovery of some Gnostic texts, I think. Not, I mean, obviously the big cash comes in the 20th century with the Naj Hammadi library discovered in the desert in, in uh, Egypt. But in the recovery of these texts, 
I think there's a real desire. I mean, first, at this moment when you have this dialectic of, you know, they are absolute evil, they're demonic, but we are now taking over. We're now stronger than they are, and we're getting all of their knowledge and so on, and we're taking over their capital networks, which was their real source of their power over relations of production, wasn't it? Uh, there's a sense, oh, their knowledge, that must be evil, and we're now in control, so that means are we going to become evil? right? Are we going to dominate? Are we going to, we're going to do so much more dominating and, and exploiting than they ever could Im imagine to do. And I think there's a kind of incentive to find in these ancient texts. That's why the early modern occultists look at these ancient texts that all were about, you know, goodness, I think, you know, like that's the, that was the purpose. Uh, but they want to find evil in there as the purpose. They want to find that, and that's why they will interpret, you know, a Gnostic text that says uh, the universe starts out good. There's some kind of fall into evil, whether that was the creation of this world itself or something that happened after. But anyway, our job is now to make it good again. It's good to evil, and then we're going to bring out good again, and they'll look at it and say, well, the serpent happens to be in this one a good figure, and because of that, this is actually evil. But that text doesn't operate under the assumption that the serpent is an agent of metaphysical evil. I'm pretty excited about a new book in the Jewish Studies series in Gorgias Press uh, by Silvio Nicol Nicolai Bunta. Silvio Nicolai Bunta. It's called The Lord God of Gods, which is about very early Jewish theology. Uh, you might say before monotheism. He actually phrases it more like before the distinction between monotheism and polytheism even existed, right? Uh, whenever you have a distinction between two things, a useful thing to do is actually to think back before that distinction was ever formulated. How does the world look then? And then in the 1960s, you have another kind of Hellenistic synthesis. We might call it the California synthesis under the auspices of... American intelligence agencies and kind of hippy-dippy culture, which is really the same thing. But Subliminal Jihad has a episode about Idris Shah, who presents a kind of Sufism that has almost nothing to do with actual Sufism, but Sufism being a mystical strain of Islam. It leads us to a very kind of 20th century bourgeois, Randian, and Randian kind of like selfishness and transcendence and domination of everyone else, which is not what Sufism should originally be about. And similarly, Zen. I would like in this podcast sometime to get into California Zen because I didn't know much about it before coming to Japan. So I was actually a tradcath, a traditional traditionalist Catholic I used to be in, there was a time I was into the Latin mass and everything uh, for about 10 years, uh, starting in high school. And uh, so I, I have my, you can tell that I've kind of wrapped my head around a lot of Abrahamic ideas. Uh, but then the experience of going to Japan, a country where people are often just really completely innocent of the whole range of Abrahamic preoccupations one of which is sort of cosmic good and evil, you know. 
And I went through a kind of dialectical development where I was very kind of anti-religion for a while. And as you can see, I'm now sort of developed beyond. There's a, a kind of Buddhist way of classifying a certain development in people's thinking. And this first stage would be when you're preoccupied. Stage two, a little higher, move on. You are not preoccupied. And then the even higher stage is to be neither preoccupied nor unpreoccupied. So these days, in a word, I would be a bit of a Buddhist, uh, definitely a communist, and religion-friendly, certainly. So, but after coming to Japan, I have visited Zen temples and read a lot of Zen literature, and I get a lot of, out of it, as I think you can tell. But... When I look back at Zen or right meditation, Buddhist meditation in America, I don't recognize it at all. You know, like terms like mindfulness doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, if anything, step one should be mindlessness. You know, mind is the thing that is always building up like a tangle of vines over you. And the Sanskrit term is skanda, which means an aggregation, a pile, a dump dumping you know there's your your senses and your perceptions and your judgments and your feelings and everything in your mind is just dumping all of this data all the time and it's just filling up your rooms right and uh, you have to not be sort of dominated by that we have to just clear that away let it go realize that all those things you're creating with your mind are only provisional there's a misperception that maybe this could make you very vulnerable to being psyoped or whatever. And I think that may actually be why the U.S. government was interested in it for a while. But the reality is that uh, the constant effort to uh, get out of all of these patterns and, and things, you're training against uh, the hardest psyop of all, which is the psyop that you do on yourself. So if you get good at that... Uh, somebody else's psyop that they come in with, you're, you're going to see through that too right away. So mind, anyway, at first is the enemy, right, if anything. Later on, you might, you know, after you've mastered that, you can go back and say, oh, actually, the desire I must release my mind, I must get outside mind, is also mind. And so, yes, then mind, we can embrace having a mind. It's okay to have a mind. It's okay to have thoughts. But it isn't step one. If you just start by embracing your mind as it is right now, uh, that sounds perfect for lifestyle consumerism and all the kinds of actual psyops that they did create right after this kind of California synthesis of Zen in the 60s. So I have collected some texts of 1960s translations of Zen literature into English, which have long commentaries by these people, and they, they like reference Hitler all of a sudden in a way that it seems pretty like admiring almost. It's, it's kind of weird, pretty spooky people as well, very spook-connected. The original audience for these texts has got to have been people out of a Thomas Pynchon novel, so I'd love to get into that. I think that's also like an occult orientation. That's an occultist kind of bourgeois interpretation of these non-Western religions that people are starting to get into in the 60s. And I think the same thing happened in the original proto-bourgeois 
expansion from Europe into the old Silk Road and into the new Silk Road of the Americas and Africa. You know, they look at Islam and they see evil. They look at indigenous religions and they see evil. And at first, you know, it's evil and that's bad. But as they begin to take over this world and rule these capital networks, I think a certain percentage of the people really right at the top are kind of like, it's evil and that's good. And they actually fetishize that. And capital itself becomes this demonic force that the bourgeoisie consciously see themselves as serving. And from a class-based perspective, that sort of ideology gives you, I mean, it would help if you're dispossessing loads of peasants, driving them off their land in this way that would be totally forbidden in feudal morality for the nobility as far as the documentary record goes, right? building whole systems on exploitation and immiseration of not only domestic proletariat, but overseas colonies. You know, you don't get anything like the wholesale exportation of just a stream of slaves just being worked to death within an average of five years or something, I think, is, is, is the statistic for Haiti, for example, of enslaved African people. Right. You don't get that in Islamic merchant capital. Right. You don't get that. There is a certain kind of ideology of blackness, which we can see in another travel chronicle by Ibn Battuta in the 14th century. And he travels from his home country of Morocco in northwest Africa to Mecca. He does the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is one of the pillars of Islam. And then after that, he goes on to India, Africa, visits the Maldives. He goes to the north as well. And then he goes back home to Morocco and then up into Spain. And here we get uh, a glimpse of Spain from the other side of the, that line, right? Uh, there are Christian paramilitaries raiding the countryside and also doing piracy on the seas of the Mediterranean. As he's walking along, he uh, almost leaves with a certain group of cavalry, but doesn't go with them. And, and that's a good thing because they end up getting ambushed and killed by some Christian raiders on the road. And there are lots of stories like this from the Christian point of view as well. I think of the Aben Therache, is uh, one story from the Christian point of view, which is not entirely, again, anti-Muslim even. It's kind of like a, a Christian raider goes and captures a noble Muslim and notice that he's crying over his lady love and he feels sorry for him and they feel a kind of solidarity and honor, honorable kind of chivalric noble uh, morality, which makes the Christian knight want to help the... Uh, Muslim man to get his lady love back, right? And a lot of those kind of tropes of chivalry and honor and things definitely originate on the Muslim side, and they're borrowed into Christian chivalry along this frontier. So Ibn Battuta uh, passes a dead horse in a ditch. Then I passed a basket of fish abandoned on the ground. This alarmed me. The guardian's watchtower was in front of me, and I said to myself, if the enemy has appeared here, the warden of the tower would have given warning. I went forward to a house and found in front of it a horse that had been killed. While I was there, I heard cries from behind me. 
I had gone ahead of my companions, but I turned back towards them. I found the Qa'id of the Suhail fort with them. He informed me that four enemy war galleys, so ships, had appeared there. Some of those manning them had landed. The warden had not been in the tower, and horsemen coming from Marbella, twelve in number, had passed by them. The Christians had killed one of them, one had fled, and ten had been taken prisoner. A fisherman had been killed with them. It was he whose basket I had found lying on the ground. And as he says in, a, in another poem that he quotes about Algarnata, or Granada, as it's known in Spanish, Granada will be the final Muslim stronghold to fall, and that signals the completion of the so-called Reconquista. Ibn Battuta cites a poem about it, which refers to it as a frontier. So you can see that there is consciousness of that on both sides. God guard Granada, place of repose, which rejoices the sad and protects the exile. It is the frontier, and God protects those who settle there. So then, after visiting Spain, Ibn Battuta heads south into Mali in Timbuktu, and visits what he calls the country of the blacks. And while he's there, he refers to the, himself as a white, right? So there's whites and blacks in this world too. But it's uh, obviously being black is not, does not destine you to unconditional slavery and subhumanity, right? Although they are, these uh, Malians are considered to be uh, sort of new converts to Islam, and you can see that there's suspicion about that, in much the same way that you saw with Ibn Fazlan dealing with the Russians, who are also new converts to Islam and not really following quite all the customs that, that the Muslim uh, visitor thinks that they should. We see, for example, they, we, they still have vestiges of group marriage where you know monogamy is not strictly enforced, and this would go together generally with less strict property relations in general, right? It tends to be once you are monopolizing surplus as an elite, then you want to say also of your sexual partners, this is only my sexual partner, partly because you want to be able to secure paternity and lineage, right? Maybe maternity as well, but in any case, for the purpose of passing on inherited privatized surplus wealth. Here in North Africa, Ibn Battuta says, Nevertheless, these peoples are Muslims. They are strict in observing the prayers, studying the religious law, and memorizing the Qur'an. Their women have no shame before men and do not veil themselves, yet they are punctilious about their prayers. Anyone who wants to take a wife among them does so, but they do not travel with their husbands. And even if one of them wished to, her family would prevent her. So it's not sort of um, patrilocal in some way that Ibn Battuta would be used to. Women there have friends and companions among men outside the prohibited degrees for marriage, and in the same way, men have women friends in the same category. A man goes into his house, finds his wife with her man friend, and does not disapprove. One day, I called on Abu Muhammad Yandakan al-Masufi, in whose company we had arrived, and found him sitting on a rug. In the middle of the room was a canopied couch, and upon it was a woman with a man sitting and talking together. I said to him, who is this woman? He said, she is my wife. I said, what about the man who is with her? He said, he is her friend. I said, are you happy about this, you who have lived in our country and know the content of the religious law? 
He said, The companionship of women and men among us is a good thing and an agreeable practice, which causes no suspicion. They are not like the women of your country. I was astonished at his silliness. I left him and did not visit him again. Afterwards, he invited me a number of times, but I did not accept. So we see here, maybe Ibn Fadlan with the Rusia doesn't feel the need to signal quite so much, but here uh, Ibn Battuta lets us know, I didn't cooperate with this. I, I definitely showed that this was not acceptable. Yeah. We also see, again, you know, a kingdom on the in the process of Islamizing here. And uh, Islam is being used, we can see in one of the sermons that is given, Ibn Battuta notices what he, what he said comprised admonitions, warnings, praise of the sultan, exhortations on the need to obey him and to accord him his due. So this is being used as a tool for consolidation of state power. There's another king in Mali. When I was at, staying at Mali, it happened that the sultan became angry with his senior wife, the daughter of his paternal uncle who is entitled Kasa, a word which means queen among them. In accordance with the custom of the blacks, she shares in the kingdom, and her name is mentioned along with his in the pulpit. She was confined in the house of one of the Ferraris, and the sultan replaced her with his other wife, Banju, who was not a king's daughter. People talked much about this and disapproved of what he had done. His uncle's daughters came to congratulate Banju on becoming queen. They put ashes on their arms, but they did not put dust on their heads. This is a, in this place, there's a custom of going before a royal personage and putting dust on your arms and on your head, so that not putting dust on their heads is a sign of maybe a little less respect. Later, the sultan released Kasa from confinement, and his uncle's daughters came to congratulate her on her release pouring dust on themselves in the customary way, so they respect her more. And he's creating a split here. He's actually consolidating patriarchy in a Muslim style, it seems, by taking a wife who is not as elite, does not have her own independent backing in quite the same way, right? So connecting up with this greater Muslim-dominated, in this area, uh, Silk Road merchant capital, structure is for him is entailing following these p rules of patriarchy i think there are material reasons we've seen some religious ideological supports for this too even batuta is impressed by the the justice and security in mali among their good practices of their are their avoidance of injustice there is no people more averse to it and their sultan does not allow anyone to practice it in any measure. The universal security in their country for neither the, the traveler nor the resident there has to fear thieves or bandits. They do not interfere with the property of white men who die in their country, even if it amounts to vast sums. They just leave it in the hands of a trustworthy white man until whoever is entitled to it takes possession of it. Their punctiliousness in praying, their perseverance in joining the congregation, and in compelling their children to do so. So Ibn Battuta is here, again, collecting laborers, right? Buying slaves is what that entails at this time, because we don't have the, say, the commodification of labor power or labor time itself, like you have under industrial capitalism. 
And so just like among the Rusia, even Fadlan on the Rusia is, is there to buy slaves, Ibn Batuta here is also buying slaves. Notice, though, that in Mali they have a state. They seem to be pastoralists and uh, agriculturalists, kind of a mix of these. There is also... So Ibn Batuta hears of hunter-gatherers to the south who are known as... Uh, infidels who eat the sons of Adam. And, and that trope of the cannibal who lives outside the civilized world will become a big part of European perceptions, colonial perceptions. Uh, someone is exiled there. He spent four years there, then the sultan brought him back to his own country. The infidels had not eaten him because he was white, for they say that eating a white man is harmful because he is unripe. They claim that a black is ripe. A group of these blacks who eat the sons of Adam came to the Sultan Mansa Suleiman, who is the brother of Mansa Musa of Mali, who has died at this point. It is their custom to put in their ears big pendants, the opening of each pendant being half a span across. They wrap themselves in silk, and in their country is a gold mine. The Sultan treated them with honor and gave them in hospitality a slave woman whom they killed and ate. They smeared their faces and hands with her blood and came to the sultan to thank him. I was told that this is their custom whenever they come on an embassy to him. So this reminds me of all kinds of different phenomena related to the consciousness of hunter-gatherers, which the last remaining living hunter-gatherers in southern Africa really unanimously say that they have a totally different view of the world and time and existence. I know that certain hunter-gatherers are able to sort of feel the consciousness of their prey. Once they have wounded an animal, they actually can feel the pain of the wound, and they can tell as the animal is dying. They actually have to go away and do other things while they're waiting for the animal to die in some cases. And in this particular scenario, they the person who delivered the wound actually sort of knows when it's time to go back to the to the prey right so life and death are very different the line between human and non-human is very different and the idea of eating another human being right this seems uh unspeakable to us and indeed it was used in propaganda by european powers throughout the age of exploration about sort of how uncivilized the rest of the world is and that would be an implicit justification for conquest and everything but uh, we see it here uh, that information first will enter the written record of the grain state and of so-called civilization through the muslim world and class society with all of its vicissitudes has given us a much more inflated sense of individual the value of an individual human life in a certain way. And uh, that, that is skillful. That can produce benefits for us. And I think uh, we ought to keep that. I'm happy keeping that, uh, right? But I think that's true of many, many things, right? Uh, even Marx talks about how capitalism has brought about ideas of personal freedom for workers, that it, fact that you have to sell your labor power and that's been commodified and you are free as a worker to sell your labor power to whichever capitalist 
you you choose. And so you do have a certain amount of agency there and individual rights uh, and bourgeois democracy are born there. And as imperfect as those things are, I think those of us who are trying to develop new systems, we don't necessarily want to throw away everything. We build on top of this. You know, that's why we're not primitivists. So but in some ways, that's a typical relationship of a grain state to hunter-gatherers living outside it. It will be those hunter-gatherers who have access to mineral resources in mountains, mining. And that's exactly what we see here. That will be a big part of where Mansa Musa got all his famous gold, and he made such a scene making the pilgrimage to Mecca just shortly before this visit of Ibn Battuta. So notice that we have a certain kind of ideology of blackness and whiteness here which is, does not coincide with grain state versus hunter-gatherers, and it doesn't quite coincide with Muslims versus infidels. But I think that, too, is going to be taken up and appropriated and mutated in European colonialism, and it will grow into the ideology of whiteness, white supremacy and anti-blackness and blackness, which is a core component of modern capitalist imperialism, built on African slavery and indigenous dispossession, together with this kind of conquistador mentality. And that conquistador mentality has a lot to do with chivalric romance. And that's something else that I want to read with you. So I have a little bit here from Las Sergas de Esplandian, The Labors of the Brave Knight Esplandian really the first major chivalric romance that is composed after Columbus's voyage to the New World. And it's called uh, the, Bra the Labors of the Very Brave Knight Esplandian. It's a sequel to Amadis of Gaul, when it in turn has more sequels too. And by the time you get to very far sequels, they, they get more and more kind of Baroque and finally, Don Quixote, right, by Cervantes, is kind of uh, destroying this genre by making a picaresque version of it, which is all about interiority and interrogation and, uh, and also lots of humor, lots of humor out of that interrogation of all kinds of contradictions. So Don Quixote is a great parody of this genre of chivalric tales, but we're going to look at Esplandian, which is one of the most important representatives of the genre as it originally existed. Although it's, it too is a transitional work because it's the first one that's really composed after the voyages of Columbus and with cognizance of the size of the, the increasing sort of size of the world and the variety of peoples that exist out there and sort of beginning to deal with all that and then also the compulsory Christianity of the Catholic monarchs Ferdinand and Isabella who are committing this great genocide of Jews and Muslims from old Andalus or now the Christian kingdom of Spain. So Esplandian takes on a new level of kind of Christian purpose to his chivalric adventures that is not present in earlier stories. You know, in, in, this is very, Esplandian is, is very con self-consciously taking on a new kind of Christian conquest mission. And we can see that very clearly in the 
a kind of fictionalized fanta- fantastical version of the siege of Constantinople of 1453 in actual history. But here in this siege of Constantinople, there is a fantastical queen of California, which is a country that the author Garthi Rodriguez de Montalvo created out of his own fanciful imagination, but which later was the basis for, the, for naming where the American state of California is. That region was named California based on this place name in, in this fictional novel. Because as the Iberian conquistadores were exploring the world and conquering it, they were drunk on this wild fantasy of holy crusade and magical uh, knights in shining armor and Merlin type shit and Excalibur and all that. They named the places they went accordingly. And California, that name actually comes from the the same root, like the, the caliph, the religious leader of Islam. So they're taking this quasi-Islamic word and applying it to California, which is a, an island inhabited entirely by black Amazon women and full of gold and jewels just everywhere. Remember the cannibals in the Ibn Battuta just now, actually, that might come from something like some memory like that. But he, anyway, he starts, Now I wish you to know about the strangest thing ever found anywhere in written texts or in human memory. You'll notice a very grand style here, which obviously is very effectively satirized in Don Quixote, but it's important to note, this is the drug that the conquistadors were drunk on. So let's, let's try a little bit of it. By means of this dangerous wonder, the next day when the city of Constantinople, right, the, the capital of the, the last bastion of, of Rome, right, is so important in the imagination of Western Europe which is really just a total unimportant backwater in world history, but they have this idea that we are the last ones who can save this holy city. The entire plot of Lord of the Rings is basically this. Yeah, the city that they save at the end of the trilogy is Constantinople, and the Fellowship of the Ring is the Crusaders. When the city was on the verge of being lost, its salvation came from the new danger itself. I tell you that on the right-hand side of the Indies, there was an island called California, which was very close to the region of the earthly paradise. So the original place where Adam and Eve were and they were kicked out of the garden, right? The Garden of Eden. Uh, this, is, this factors in a lot of explorations. There's a certain Spanish explorer who comes from Mexico to Japan and he's looking for the earthly paradise or maybe the Isla de Plata, the island of silver, right? Uh, so they believe, first of all, that there is the earthly paradise is still somewhere on earth and they can find that. And maybe as you get closer to that, it becomes sort of easier to live and the, the climate is easier, right? Memory, we talked about how the, it might be an ancestral memory of hunter-gatherer life, which was so much easier than life under class society. But um, they believe that this is really out there somewhere and also all these magical islands of Merlin and, uh, you know, Urganda, the unknown, the, the sorceress who is guiding our hero Esplandian. 
So, and all this stuff is still, by the way, in the minds of a lot of deep state ghouls today. We know this, you know, uh, the Paladin group. What is that named after, right? Palantir comes from uh, Lord of the Rings, which is absolutely this. Ab- Lord of the Rings is uh, knights in shining armor stuff, just kind of rehashed for Cold War anti-communism. And uh, Star Wars, too. Star Wars is that very consciously. George Lucas, of course, is very, very uh, closely connected to uh, intelligence agencies, Lookout Mountain, and so on. And even today, the security state elite who are running all of our wars, both known and unknown, I listened to it an interview with Cy Hirsch yesterday where he dropped a statistic that, was it 87 countries where Americans, soldiers of some description are using weapons fighting? You know, it's not wars that are declared, but it's it's dozens and dozens of countries where we're actually secretly at war, uh, much of it in Africa today. So this island was made up of the wildest cliffs and the sharpest precipices found anywhere in the world. I think that would link in with a kind of spontaneous generation theory, which is the idea that a certain amount of the phenomena that we observe in the world are just God directly creating these things, like God creates the bacteria that grow on uh, food if you leave it out or or something. Uh, God just creates the bugs that grow somewhere. Um, you know, bigger and more permanent things, obviously we see those and we don't imagine that God is creating them. Uh, and we know more about how they reproduce themselves. But, uh, you know, and so there's also a sense too that that's also why there would be an idea that close to the earthly paradise, it would be easy to get gold and jewels and things. But also this is a land of infidels, infidels, which, you know, again, we have this transference from the ultimate infidels against whom all of the jurisprudence of holy war and crusade was created, uh, that's transferred onto the indigenous peoples of the entire world by European conquistadors. So now everyone is fair game. And then also they're imagined as being um, just absolutely demonic and depraved uh, in all the same ways, right? But at the extreme, and certainly here, certainly here, California is, I think, meant to be very infidel, right? And so you'll see in letters from Japan by traders and missionaries who are there in the 16th century also that, uh, you know, it's a very poor country. There's just no resources and the peasants are always just an inch away from starving and all they have to eat are some meager dried fish once in a while. They don't get to keep much of their grain. It's such a, it has steep cliffs and, and things just like here, right? And if we can preach the Christian message here, we can fix that, basically. So they really think that like, and also compare that, they compare that to the richness of the diet and the economy in Europe. And clearly that is a result of God's providence and God's, uh, the relationship that Europeans have with the Christian God. And that makes them have a more robust economy. 
Of course, in reality, it's thanks to plundering Africa and the Americas, but that started about 100 years before, so they're not conscious of that. Uh, and so if Japan can be cre converted to Christianity, then all those steep cliffs will presumably become softer and the ground will become more fertile and so on. So they, they and they, they really did believe this, you know, Athanasius Kircher, the German Jesuit who runs a kind of prototypical cabinet of curiosities or like Wunderkammer, the Jesuit Museum in Rome. That was a common Renaissance thing to have like cabinet of curiosities from all around the world coming in from all these newly discovered uh, regions to Europe. And they would have wonders of science, wonders of medicine, wonders of biology and botany and optics, lenses, mirrors, prisms. So Kirche, right? He actually has a passage in, I think, the subterranean world where he says that there are some beetles that have crosses. Beetles with crosses on their backs began to appear in China only when the missionaries of the gospel began to preach the Christian message there. So that too would be spontaneous generation, right? In a land where the Christian message is being preached, just naturally beetles will start to have crosses on them. There's also uh, mir miraculous crosses that are found in side the grain of wood of a, a tree that is cut in Japan. And the missionaries promote these miracles as like, oh, look, this is now we've started preaching the Christian message. And so inside this firewood that you've now cut, you have God's logo gets put on, on things now. So the women of California, these women had energetic bodies and courageous, ardent hearts, and they were very strong. Their armor was made entirely out of gold, which was the only metal found on the island, as were the trappings on the fierce beasts that they rode once they were tamed. They lived in very well-designed caves. They had many ships that they used to sally forth on their raiding expeditions, and in which they carried away the men they seized and whom they killed, in a way about which you will soon hear which is, uh, they use griffins. They have griffins and they have all kinds of fantastical beasts. And so we have here a, a very kind of fearful depiction of a feminine other, a black other, an infidel other, but which is nevertheless very, very powerful. And they also are interested in crusade and conquest in a way that Obviously, real indigenous peoples and real Muslims arguably never were. Muslim conquest is really quite different, and they live with conquered peoples in a much more tolerant and peaceful way, isn't it? But here we have this projection, psychological projection of the desire for conquest onto the Amazons of California. So at the time when all the pagans' grandees left with those very large fleets, as the story has already told you, uh, there reigned on California Island a queen in the flower of her youth who was bigger and more beautiful than the other women on the island, and she conceived a grand design to achieve great deeds. She encouraged them and urged them on by holding up before them the great honor and profit that could redound to them by undertaking such a journey to help attack Constantinople, right? At this time, too, there's much more kind of paranoid crusader literature, like Orlando Furioso of Ludovico Ariosto, 
Torquato Tasso's Liberation of Jerusalem. In Orlando Furioso, the evil African king Agramante. I think of the kingdom of Agrabah in Disney's Aladdin is similarly kind of menacing, right? But Agramante comes and takes over all of Europe and and it's up to furious Orlando to save the day. So we have a similar projection happening here. She insisted on the very great fame they could achieve by having their glory bruited throughout the whole world, but instead remaining on their island and doing nothing other than what their ancestors did would be tantamount to being buried alive like the living dead or to living out the rest of their days like dumb animals without fame or glory. So I don't think that Muslims and indigenous people quite thought this way, but uh, the Christian conquistadors very much did. So that very zealous Queen Calafia said so much to them that she not only moved her people to agree to such a journey, but they themselves were so animated with a deep desire to have their fame divulged throughout the world that they hurriedly put out to sea in order to join those grandees in whatever battles might occur. So she brings griffins who catch people. It's very very reminiscent of the Wild Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. So then... After they begin the siege of Constantinople, sure enough, Esplandian and Amadis and Lisuarte of, of Britain all arrive from all over Europe, all these great fan, fantasy heroes, knights, in uh, shining armor of different colors. Esplandian is the black knight. His armor is all black. And he rides a, a sh magical ship given to him by Urganda the Unknown, who's kind of his Merlin figure, like his assistant who gives him his quests to go on and also equips him with magical items. But she has given him this ship called uh, the, um, the Serpentine, the, the ship of the serpent. So he also is the, the knight of the serpent. So he's arrived there, and then the queen, Calafia, goes to meet him. And she is riding just a totally fantastical beast as well. Uh, this too, you can see the influence of rumors of the totally different ecologies of the new places that are being discovered after the voyages of Columbus. She comes in these fantastic robes. Up to that point, the Amazons of California, the Californian women have all gold, as we mentioned, gold armor, and also it, it mentions they have boob armor that is made of giant skulls of fishes so but now she comes in a robe she comes in this very kind of feminine guise and there's this great fear of this uh sort of sexuality that is not patriarchal but she ultimately is sort of defeated by the sheer magnetic appeal of the white man which this is a trope that i think we'll see in a lot of other media even today so it starts, she went to her ships where she spent the whole night trying to decide whether she would undertake the visit wearing her armor or not. In the end, she decided on feminine apparel because it would be more modest. When dawn came, she rose and she was given some robes to put on, which were made entirely of gold and many precious stones. Also, she wore a finely designed headdress with a huge volume of twists and turns. And when she finally put it on her head, it was like a capeline. This is a lobster-tailed pot helmet. It was made completely of gold, studded with gems of great value. 
To ride to her meeting, she was brought the strangest-looking bestial that was ever seen. Each ear was as large as a shield. Its forehead was broad. It only had one eye, which looked like a mirror. Its nostrils were widely flared. Its face was short and so snub-nosed that it almost had no snout at all. And two tusks that were each two hands long rose out of its bottom jaw. It was of a yellow color, with royal purple spots like those of an ounce, but it was larger than a dromedary, and it had cloven hooves like an ox's. It ran as fiercely as the wind, and like mountain goats it was able to negotiate the most rugged crags very fleetly. It ate only dates, figs, and raisins, and nothing else at all. Viewed from the haunches, sides, and chest, it was quite beautiful. In short, as you heard before, this is the bestial on which that beautiful queen rode out of her camp while being accompanied by two thousand of her wonderfully attired women. Attending her were twenty magnificently attired damsels who were charged with caring for her skirts, which flowed from that beast's back for more than four braces and dragged along the ground. The queen arrived at the Christian camp, dressed in that fashion and with that large retinue. There she found all the kings, who were now on land, seated on their chairs, which were covered with golden cloths. Moreover, they were all armed, because they did not trust the pagans' promises. They came out to meet her at the door to the tent, where she alighted from her mount in the arms of Don Cuadragante. The two kings, Lisuarte and Perion, took her hands and showed her to a chair that was placed between them. From this position she looked about and saw Esplandian next to King Lisuarte, who was holding his hand. Since his handsomeness exceeded the others in the extreme, she realized it was he, and she said in a loud voice, Oh my gods, what can this be? Now I tell you that I have seen the likes of which was never seen before, and will never be seen again. As he was staring at her beautiful face with his charming eyes, she felt the rays that were emanating from his radiant beauty. Esplandian actually means like radiant, right? While he, she felt it wound her eyes and penetrate straight to her heart. Hence, although she had never before been conquered by any great force of arms, nor had she ever been bowed in any battle against an enemy, she was as softened and weakened by that vision and that amorous passion as if she had run a gauntlet of iron mallets. Seeing herself so afflicted, she realized that if she sojourned there any longer... More difficulties might damage her great fame as a manly knight, which she had won by overcoming so much peril and travail. Moreover, by staying longer, she was risking discredit and dishonor, and she knew she would be returned to the state of natural weakness that was nature's first gift and ornament to women. Painfully struggling to keep her reason from succumbing to her will, she rose from the chair and said, Knight of the Great Serpent, I wanted to see you on account of two qualities that make you more famous than all other mortals. The first is your great handsomeness, which I would not have believed had I not seen it with my own eyes, for no report is capable of describing your great good looks. And the second is the valor and courage of your strong heart. I have seen the first one, the likes of which I never saw before, and I never expect to see again, even though I am granted many more years of life. As for the second one, it will be revealed on the battlefield against Radiaro, Soldan of Lycia, and my valor will be shown against this powerful king, your father. And if fortune ordains us to come through these and the other battles alive, as we expect we shall, then, before I return to my land, I will approach you again to discuss some of my affairs. 
So they start having challenges together, one fighting each other in the arena. So then we have this interesting comment about gender as well at the end. Before Esplandian could respond, the two elder kings took her hands, led her out of the tent, and helped her mount her strange bestial. They prevented him from entering into a discussion with her, even though she was an amazing sight to look at, and even though she was beautiful, because they felt it was most immodest for her to dress in armor rather than the style that befit her feminine nature, and that was commanded by the very mouth of God, who said that women ought to be subject to men, whereas she was seeking the opposite. She desired to rule over all men, not by means of sharpness of mind, but rather by force of arms. But above all, they interrupted the conversation because she was one of the infidels whom he detested mortally and whom he sought to destroy." After she departed, King Amadis ordered that his horses and Esplandians be brought to them so that they would be prepared for battle whenever the Soldan and the Queen went onto the battlefield. So, as I said, this is a good place to understand kind of self-other dialectic. The other is exoticized and uh, all kinds of uh, qualities that that the subject culture regards as evil or perverse are projected onto uh, the, the other, right? Uh, you can tell from the Fantastic Beast and things, this is after the voyages of Columbus. So we're, we have information reaching Spain about the great variety of plants, animals, and peoples and cultures that exist out in the world. Uh, some of these would include cultures that are not as patriarchal as medieval Spain, much like we saw Ibn Battuta also encountering people on the Muslim periphery who are uh, less patriarchal than the Muslim world. So, But now the Europeans are beginning to see these things for themselves, and we see here uh, the kind of projection that is happening across that divide. It's a kind of mirror Nowhere more so than the kind of victim's consciousness which the crusader conquistador ideology gives us at the end of this chapter. Almost all of the world's pagans have gone to lay siege to Constantinople, and they are pressing it hard. Now all of Christendom has gone on a rescue mission, and the only nation that is missing is Spain. If our Lord God does not send his mercy to his people, neither this region nor that one will fail to come under pagan domination. So the kind of, this is called a revanchist, right? A French word, revanche, uh, revenge. Uh, so a revanchist sentiment, the idea that we are the victims and we must uh, get revenge. We're done putting up with uh, all this social justice warrior stuff, right? You get this in modern fascism all the time. And it comes right from the conquistadors, which these stories were so influential. And the explorers who were going around uh, conquering and naming places and mapping the non-European world read these. Not only did they read these stories, they took them as the, the uh, distillation of the essence of their mission, what they were doing. This was a civilizational, crusade, literal crusade, yeah? And you can see that from the fact, again, that 
this fictional queen of California, this fictional land of California becomes the basis for the naming of the actual California. So we've gone plenty long this time, but that is the age of exploration. And next time we'll be getting into industrial capitalism, modern imperialism, and I can't wait to get into it with you. Uh, in the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you. I consider sort of maybe making a discord for this podcast, but actually I want to say that sort of maybe more of a cell model is, is more appropriate, uh, just in the sense that it's most meaningful what you do materially around you and your community. I think that online organizing has great limitations, and for the same amount of time and the same amount of effort, I would think you could get a lot more out of actually just reaching out, do something good uh, for someone, ask someone what they need. Someone who is like you in their relationship to production, someone who is of a similar class background to you, but maybe someone who is different from you in every other way and who you normally wouldn't say hello to. Speak to them. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them how you can help. Ask them how you can connect. And I think that's going to be really the best way to build the kingless generation. I'm Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. <laughs>